This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Trinidad Lavanca, who is at the Hospital Municipal Dr. Bernardo Jose, and there she is the director of the Transgender Health Program, and she's also in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology in the Hospital Italiano de Buenos Aires in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Welcome, Trini. Thank you very much for having such a kind invitation. Well, um, my gender pronouns are she and her. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us this, this important information. Um, for our audience, um, uh, Trinidad is the uh, first author of a manuscript uh, recently published in the International Journal uh, titled Transgender Patients, Considerations for Routine Gynecologic Care and Cancer Screening. So obviously an important and very, very relevant topic. Um, so Trini, I wanted to um, start by asking you, um, tell us a little bit about you and in your training. How did you go about um, uh, gaining experience in the surgery related to uh, uh, transgender procedures. Well, thank you, Pedro. Uh, well, my journey in this field, it all started back in the residency, uh, in OBGYN residency. Uh, a transgender man was admitted to my hospital. I, I was working there, and he had sort of injured his chest, and he wanted, or may I say, he needed his chest masculinization surgery so deeply but we couldn't give him any answers in the healthcare system in Argentina at that time. So he was my first transgender patient, and since then I felt the urge to achieve a better understanding, acquire some surgical skills, and of course I, in my country there was not a, a, a program regarding transgender health education. So I had to travel to Spain, and I did my fellowship. I had the honor uh, to do my fellowship with Dr. Ivan Maniero in Barcelona, uh, he is a pioneer in the field of transgender health and performs uh, more than 100 sexual confusion surgeries a year. Amazing. And then you now have returned to Argentina where you practice and uh, continue to um, uh, take care of, obviously, a transgender population there. Yes, exactly. I'm, 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 I'm working in a public hospital in my country. You know, transgender people, uh, most of them, we don't, they don't have social security or, uh, or social uh, so there's lots of patients in the public area. Uh, and I'm also working in a private model, so I, I work a lot in here in Argentina. Yeah. So, uh, Trini, I'd like to start by having you uh, please define for the audience, what is the definition of a transgender, uh, particularly, obviously, focusing on trans female and trans male? Okay, let me first explain briefly two important concepts in order to understand it better. Uh, the first concept I would like to explain is that in most countries, sex is assigned at birth based on the neonate external genitalia, and this is called a sex assigned at birth. And on the other hand, a gender identity is an a individual internal act, you know, innate sense of being male, female, neither or both. Now, um, transgender is a term used to describe people who do not identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. And uh, for example, a transgender woman is a person who identifies as a woman and was assigned se male sex at birth, whereas a transgender man identifies as a man and was assigned as a female at birth. 
And uh, last, on the other hand, that I'm cisgender, this first person whose current gender identity is consistent with the sex that was recorded at birth. I see. And then now, Cindy, the, there, there's other terminology, and, and, I, and I saw that you use some of this terminology, obviously, also in your, uh, in your manuscript. Um, tell us, what is the definition of gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, and gender fluid? Okay, but they, they are transgender is an umbrella term that include all what you just mentioned. And for example, people with non-binary genders have identities that do not fit exclusively into the binary categories of women or men. And for some other people, gender identity is not rigid and may vary over time. That's gender fluid. And you can also find other words such as agender, bigender, genderqueer, among others. And none of these are identical. They are not synonymous. Uh, but yes, they all refer to a broad spectrum of gender, identi of gender identities that uh, do not just uh, fit into men or women exclusively. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, now, you know, certainly, obviously, we, we, we need to be familiar, obviously, not only with the, with the terminology and, and, uh, and certainly the, the, the relevance of the healthcare for uh, transgender people. Um, mm -hmm. How prevalent is this? worldwide and also I was wondering if, if you have any numbers for the United States. Well yes, uh, the World Health Organization uh, it's estimated that 0.5 of the world population is transgender or identifies as transgender and this obviously can be low, uh, underestimated because of discrimination, violence in many countries and social stigma and there's a latest publication from the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Safran and Tamprika, and they uh, say that approximately 0 0.5 of the adults in the United States that represents approximately 1.4 million people identify as transgender. However, uh, in the next generations, it might be a little or substantially higher, I, I mean, because in the uh, study from the GLAD Institute, found that 12% of people aged to 18 for, uh, to 34 years in the U.S. identify as gender other than cisgender. So it's really, uh, like it seems to be really prevalent in next generation. Yeah, and those are amazing numbers. 25 million worldwide and 1.4 million in the United States. In the U.S., so yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So I um, wanted to also go on to ask you, you know, certainly, unfortunately, there seems to be a significant degree of discrimination in this uh, community and um, mm -hmm. some even consider that gender variant behavior is actually a mental disorder um, can can you speak to that point or address that issue yeah thanks Pedro it's like I think it's a very important question because you know historically transgender people were neglected medical treatment uh, or they required a mental health provider diagnosis or referral or even a judicial intervention but nowadays, the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association and the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, among other organizations, they do not consider gender variant behavior as a mental disorder anymore. Mm -hmm. So obviously, the, the, the issue of the discrimination is quite relevant, which brings me to um, my next question. I, I think you, in your manuscript, you mentioned a survey in the United States that uh, I think targeted nine academic centers where basically 80% of providers reported that they have received no education on the care of transgender patients. 
and that actually only 29% felt comfortable taking care of these patients. So my, my question to you would be, uh, why, why uh, should a gynecologist or a gynecologic oncologist be familiar with, um, with issues that are relevant to the transgender population? And I think obviously it, uh, we know that it is important, um, but you know, certainly w w why is there that gap in, in training and, and why do we feel this stigma uh, towards this population? Okay. You know, like gynecologists, we have traditionally been considered as primary doctor of cisgender women. Uh, however, given the prevalence of transgender population and the estimated increase in the next few years, uh, the concept of diversity or sexual diversity or, sex or sexual identities needs to be incorporated into clinical practice, especially in gynecological clinical practice. And because, why do I say that? Because uh, in the gynecological care setting is particularly, it might be particularly stressing for some transgender individuals. For example, um, if you go to a gynecological center and it says, uh, science where it says women's health, it can be stigmatizing and isolating for a person who is not a woman, but still needs to the care of a gynecology. Mm. And similarly, uh, some experiences, for example, misgendering by clinical staff, can also traumatize patients and deter them from different from future uh, health care. So in order to promote sexual health for every person, gynecologists should be familiar with sexual identities and orientations and communicate sensitively. Yeah, so obviously uh, you mentioned a very important point with regards to obviously being sensitive to, to this population. And that also actually brings me to the next point. In, um, I believe one of your tables, you, you display, uh, and I, I really thought this was a, 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 an excellent table, you display a, a number of terms that we as gynecologists or gynecologic oncologists commonly use, such as obviously the vulva, the labia, um, the uterus, the ovaries, et cetera. Um, how should we uh, be using other terms when discussing with the transgender community to identify these ex same exact uh, anatomical areas that I described. Okay, uh, yes, of course. Um, these are, it's very important to say it's our daily practice and it's, um, there are some words that are socially associated with femi feminine sexual anatomy, uh, like the words you just said. And transgender people, especially trans men, may feel uncomfortable with such terms because they have a very feminine connotation and they prefer gender neutral words. And that table you mentioned is, uh, is based on different reports, but especially uh, in the clinical practice. You know, it's very important to listen to our patients and to listen how they call their anatomical parts. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's better to use chest, for example, instead of breasts, or genital opening instead of vagina, or internal organs when we discuss about uterus or ovaries. Uh, also, some, some words, for example, period or menstruation, are, uh, have a very feminine, you know, uh, connotation, social connotation. So it might be changed for bleeding, for example. Yeah, and I, and I also saw that, you know, words like pap smear, uh, using HPV-related exactly. cancer screening and even bra or panties using the word underwear rather than those, those words. So um, I think that that table, it's, uh, it's also very, very important. Um, now... You know, certainly when we consider or look at guidelines or society statements, are there any current recommendations by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology or, you know, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecology um, regarding sexual 
health and more importantly regarding gender yes uh, i mean the 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 recommendations are mainly based on addressing sexual health and routine gynecological practice some sometimes we forget about addressing sexual health that is very important it's a formal recommendation and this uh, by, might be achieved by not making assumptions, not judging our patients' behavior, including you know, relationships, sexual practices, and sexual partner, and aiming to promote sexual health of a, as, a, as a right for every person. That's the recommendation. Right. So now, uh, can you tell us, and you know, certainly for those who may not be as familiar, and I presume that's the overwhelming majority of the, uh, of the audience, what is the process of what is called transitioning. What is that? What is that like? Okay, transition, or or some prefer the term gender affirmation, is the process of changing from living and being perceived as the gender traditionally associated with the sex assigned at birth, uh, to living and being perceived as the individual sees and understands themselves. And this may include, for example, social affirmation or uh, uh, legal changes, hormone therapies or surgical uh, affirmation. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and Trini, just as an uh, aside to that, uh, with regards to the actual surgery, um, is this a surgery that is typically performed as a, a one-time procedure, or are these multiple procedures until the certainly that uh, you have achieved what is called the, the complete transition? Uh, it might be uh, that, that that question. I mean, I, I have to answer depending on the on the surgery you're asking. But traditionally or generally, it they can all be performed. Uh, I mean, each surgery in a one-step procedure. But uh, maybe there are long, long uh, procedures, and you know, uh, achieving two surgical surgeries in one time. It might be challenging for the surgeon and for the for the patients of course mm-hmm. so if you ask me if what if the for example the um, genital confirming surgical surgery is in one step most surgeons they do perform them in one step yes but if you ask me if in the same surgery you can include i don't know breast augmentation and vaginoplasty it can be performed but you have to take into account the patient and if, if, if she will tolerate it and of course the, the surgery, the right. surgeon, sorry. Exactly. So now you mentioned previously um, the gender conforming therapies, and I, br- I think you briefly touched upon uh, hormonal therapies or surgical uh, procedures. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, and, and, and particularly both for actually for trans female and for trans male? Uh, yes, well, when we talk about gender-confirming therapies, uh, the first step is to listen to our patients you know, and, and understand their expectations regarding hormone therapy or surgery, as well as interest in fertility. That's very important. Mm-hmm. And when talking about hormone therapy for transgender women, it includes estrogen and antiandrogens. However, as I mentioned before, if the, if the patient had undergone, for example, bilateral orchiectomy or if she's involved in penetrative intercourse, mm-hmm. antiandrogens should be reconsidered or even stopped. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, testosterone is typically used for transgender men in order to develop secondary sex male characteristics. Mm-hmm. And it can also have a positive effect on genital bleeding sensation. That's one of the transgender men's main concern. 
uh, uh, when we talk about surgeries, uh, it's important to notice that surgery for transgender individuals are considered reconstructive rather than static procedures. Mm -hmm. And for example, for transgender women, some surgeries may uh, be, for example, breast augmentation, augmentation mm -hmm. laryngeal surgery, facial feminization, and the step child confirming genital surgery for trans women is called vaginoplasty. And for transgender men, patients may undergo in chest surgery, that is bilateral mastectomy, an additional reconstructive technique. Mm -hmm. And when talking about sexual confirming sur genital surgery for transgender men, uh, it can be achieved uh, by metadioplasty or, or phalloplasty. Mm -hmm. So, and for, for the trans female, um, tell us a little bit more about cancer screening. Uh, particularly addressing breast cancer screening or cervical neovaginal screening. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay. Yes, of course. Uh, first of all, I, I would like to say that uh, the evidence like, uh, that relating to cancer uh, in trans population is limited, but there is consensus that gynecological screening should depend on the patient's hormonal and surgical status. Mm -hmm. So for trans female breast cancer, as you asked me, trans women, older than 50 years with additional risk factors. And when I say risk factor, one of the risk factors is estrogen use more than five years, mm -hmm. could benefit from screening with mammography follow cisgender women recommendations. And the US Preventive Task Force recommends BNL mammography for women aged 50 to 74. Mm -hmm. And considering cancer cervical screening in transgender women, well, it's not uh, an option because they do not have a cervix because the neovagina is uh, lined with keratinized penile skin mm -hmm. and they have a cul de sac, they do not have a cervix. But, and the evidence suggests that neoplasia in, the, in this skin is very small. But let me just ask the, add that while these individuals are not at risk for cervical cancer, they are at risk of other HPV and some sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. So they could benefit from the examination of the neovagina, clitoris, and adenora. Right. And, uh, and then now, uh, obviously, the similar question for the trans male. Um, so in addition to breast cancer and cervical cancer screening, um, is there some sort of routine evaluation pertaining to ovarian evaluation? Okay, uh, I would like to start saying that the diagnosis of female organ cancer in trans male may, be, may have important psychological and social impacts. So it's important to um, consider periodic screening in transgender men. And for chest or breast cancer screening in trans men who have not undergone bilateral mastectomy, the recommendations are the same as for non-transgender women. Mm -hmm. But after chest masculinization where bilateral mastectomy is performed, uh, the risk of breast cancer is reduced but not zero. So one should discuss the benefit of physical examination or a chest wall ultrasound with patients. Uh, now, moving on cervical cancer in transgender men, the decision to undergo screening should be based on individual risk and be considered in all transgender men with intact cervix. Um, and finally, regarding ovarian cancer, as you mentioned before, there is uh, there's no evidence to support screening trans men patients for ovarian cancer, and the recommendations are identical for no, those in non-transgender females. Mm -hmm. But of course, that if there is a family history of ovarian cancer or an identified BRCA mutation, uh, one should discuss risk reduction reductions are being offered in, uh, after discussing desire for further childbearing. Right. And I was wondering, with regards to the, the, the men 
that, that transition to a woman, uh, so a trans woman, um, risk of prostate cancer. Um, how should physicians go about doing this? Okay, uh, that's a very important question because um, the prostate, even in patients who had undergone vaginoplasty, the prostate is not removed during surgery. And also combination hormone therapy for those trans female who are under estrogens and antiandrogens decreases the risk of prostate cancer. However, it is not zero and some cases of prostate cancer have been reported. So uh, here in transgender women, we have other options, uh, for example, digital neovaginal examination or even transvaginal ultrasound of the prostate can be offered. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about prostate-specific antigen, uh, we have to consider that in an androgen deficient setting, like a transgender woman receiving hormones, the presence of prostate cancer, uh, the PSA cutoffs are unknown and it might, might be falsely slow. Uh, so mm. we have to consider that. I see. So, and, and so is a PSA routinely obtained or not really recommended? Uh, it, it, it's uh, recommended to follow the framework for non-transgender men. Mm -hmm. Usually it is, uh, it is um, uh, recommended, but uh, you have to take into account that it might be falsely slow, uh, low in the, even in the presence of prostate cancer. So yeah. as we do not know the cutoff, maybe other exams such as, as, as I mentioned before, the digital examination or ultrasound can uh, be helpful. Okay. So now um, what are some of the most, I guess, important and, and relevant areas of research as it pertains to uh, the field of uh, transgender surgery and, and, and care? Well, uh, in the last years, there has been a lot of noticeable growth of research in transgender medicine. Uh, however, of course, there are some gaps that remain unclear. And I think that the first is the need of robust evidence regarding epidemiology in the transgender population around the world uh, in order to study, for example, transgender youth and adolescents, fertility issues, or long-term effects of hormone therapy and breast surveillance strategies, and uh, sexuality after gender confirmation surgery, quality of life, costs, uh, among others. I mean, there are, there are lots of gaps, and, and I think there's a lot of effort to, to answer them. Yeah. So now, um, you know, obviously, uh, I think it's also a very important question. Um, what, what do you think should be the responsibilities of societies like the Society of Gynecologic Oncology in the United States, um, the International Gynecologic Cancer Society, and ESGO, the European Society of Gynecologic Oncology, as it pertains to training and education regarding care and screening for cancer in the transgender? Well, thank you very much for that relevant question. Uh, you know, but in my opinion, uh, medical societies play a key role regarding uh, some important key points. And for example, first, promoting social awareness and patient empowerment. Uh, second, as you mentioned, strategic education aiming to improve the skills for transgender clinical practice. And of course, guarantee access to the healthcare system, promoting equity, inclusion with high quality assistance. But on the other hand, it is of essence that we listen to our transgender patients and learn their needs and understand their concerns, uh, involving them into this new paradigm that includes gender diversity. Yeah. So Trina, I've, uh, obviously it's been a, a great learning experience uh, for me and I'm sure our audience will feel exactly the same way. Um, and our, our time is coming to a close. Uh, would you like to make any uh, closing uh, summary statements? 
Well, thank you very much. Uh, some, I can actually say that uh, gynecologists and gynecologists oncologists should be involved in, in, in transgender clinical practice and understand gender diversity to promote health, sexual health. And that gynecologist cancer screening should be organ rather than gender-based and that uh, hormone therapy and surgical steps may change screening strategies. Mm, and also that, the, of course, there's a need of further high-quality research in the field. But if we look back to all the progress that has been in the transgender medical field, we can rest assured that we are taking big steps to reinforce social well-being. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm, I certainly I, I wanted to once again reinstate that uh, it's, it's obviously an honor for me to, uh, to have this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you know, certainly our audience will really appreciate the, the, the value and the information that you've provided. And uh, I want to congratulate you also for the, uh, the strides that you have made and, and the efforts that you have put into um, training and educating and, uh, and certainly taking care of the uh, transgender population. So thank you for your contributions. And uh, it's been really an honor. Thank you very much. It has been my honor. Thank you. Thank you very much for the podcast and the space. <laughs> thank you.